Good morning, everyone. My name is Karina, and I bring you today's second Bible reading. It comes from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 26. This can be found in, on page 1222 in the Pew Bibles or on the screen in front of you. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, rage, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Glorious King of heaven, majestic, holy, and righteous, enthroned above the cherubim, to you we come, Abba Father, and plead with you that our hearts may be humbled, that our ears will continue to hear what you will say to us through your Holy Spirit as we open your word. May this morning bring us the word of your unfailing love. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Do you know there are two types of Christians? The first type is those who are filled always with joy and peace. They mature with ease and they go through the storms of life with dignity and confidence. You see, these people live a Christ-exalting life. The second group of Christians are those who are joyless, they remain childlike in their faith and are often tossed to and fro by the storms of life. These people struggle to exalt Christ in their lives. Why are these two groups of Christians so different? These two groups are different because they operate under different sets of principles. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, we will discover that these two differing principles of operation are, one, a life guided by the Holy Spirit, and two, a life that is guided by the flesh. The difference between these two principles is the guidance of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the third and often forgotten member of the Trinity. Failure to recognize the guiding hand of God the Holy Spirit and His Lordship in our lives 
may result in stunted spiritual growth and at times even shipwreck our faith. So, which group of Christians do you belong to? Are you guided by God the Holy Spirit to live a Christ-exalting life? Or are you guided by the flesh? In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, we will learn a very, very valuable lesson. And it is this. To live a Christ-exalting life, we must be guided by the Holy Spirit. A life guided by the Holy Spirit helps us to do three things which we will discover in verses 16 to 18. We'll discover that we are able to walk by the Spirit. In verses 19 to 23, we will discover that we are able to wage war against sin. And in verses 24 to 26, we will understand that we need to weed out our sin of indwelling sin. So let us look at this passage closely, which brings us to the first point. To live a Christ-exalting life, we must walk by the Spirit. Christian life, brothers and sisters, is a life of discipline and hard work. It is not a walk in the park. And one of the disciplines that we must work on is learning how to live a Christ-exalting life. How do we do this? How do we live a Christ-exalting life? We learn from God the Holy Spirit, our teacher, who dwells in us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we learn that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we can walk by the Spirit and say no to sin. Let us look at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here, the Apostle Paul is giving us a command, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit here means Holy Spirit-inspired empowerment, direction or lifestyle pattern, whereby Christians are guided by the Word of God in everything we do. This means our eating and drinking or whatever that we may do must be guided by God the Holy Spirit. How do we practically walk by the Spirit? There are two and very important aspects to walking by the Spirit. Firstly, we must soak or marinate our minds in the Word of God to the extent we walk, talk, and conduct ourselves like Jesus Christ. It is like marinating chicken meat in aromatic spices to cook tandoori chicken. The longer the meat is marinated, the more tender it becomes and produces the aroma of the spices. Similarly, marinating our minds in the Word of God for longer periods of time enables us to produce the aroma of Christ because the Word of God infiltrates the deepest recesses of our being, thus enabling us to exhibit the character of Jesus. We marinate our minds, we soak our minds in the Word of God by reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on the Word of God, gathering together in our growth groups and in assembly like this. 
The second aspect of walking in the Spirit or by the Spirit is being in conversation with God throughout the day, which is prayer, which means we constantly ask God for direction and help in prayer. Being in such communion with God in prayer is so rewarding to know that He is with us every moment of the day, whether we feel it or not. Soaking of our minds in the Word of God and unceasing prayer is not a sporadic activity, but a daily discipline. Discipline is crucial if we want to be successful in life, isn't it? Discipline of regular exercise is crucial for healthy living. I advise my patients to discipline themselves by walking at least 150 minutes a week because it reduces the risk of heart attack and stroke by about 35%. The discipline of walking by the Spirit is far more critical because we will learn not to gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, the desire mentioned here in verse 16 refers to forbidden lusts. What does Paul mean by the word flesh? When used in contrast with the Spirit, flesh refers to our physical body that is dominated by sin. The flesh is also called sinful human nature or fallen flesh because every inclination of our body or flesh is to sin. The term, you will not, in Greek, in verse 16, is in the double negative, which means it is impossible for Christians who are guided by the Holy Spirit to live a life of habitual sin. For example, King David committed adultery and premeditated murder but he repented and remained faithful to God till the end of his life. The Apostle Peter betrayed Jesus three times but did not give up on his faith and remained faithful to the end of his life. So what this means is we must walk by the Spirit and say no to the flesh. Look at verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Here we see that these two principles, the spirit and the flesh, operate against each other. These two principles can never be reconciled. It is like trying to mix oil and water. They will never mix because their physical properties will never allow that. In Romans chapter 7, we learn that our spirits and our flesh are not only irreconcilable, but are at war with each other. Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The Greek verb used in led by the Spirit implies active, personal, and ongoing involvement of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. This means Christians must learn to walk by the Spirit because that is our default way of living on earth. This means whether we are resting at home, working in the office, studying at school, or whatever it is that we may be doing, no matter how mundane or crucial the task may be, we are to be led by God the Holy Spirit. 
the implication of this verse is that if we are not guided by the Holy Spirit, we will revert to operating in the flesh and relying on ourselves and our human cleverness. Law in verse 18 does not just refer to the Mosaic law or the sum of the Jewish law system, but implies also to our own efforts to achieve godliness. The result? We grieve the Holy Spirit because we can never please God without the guidance and help of God the Holy Spirit. A few years ago, I remember having a conversation with a Christian about salvation in Jesus Christ and what it meant. This man had been a Christian for most part of his adult life. And by the time he was in his late 50s, he had started to veer off the true path. He was misled by some heretical teaching. He argued vehemently that salvation is by faith in Christ along with water baptism. I tried to tell him based on Galatians that adding anything else to the finished work of Christ is an anathema. He couldn't see that. And he was also guilty of several sins which he could not see because he was guilty of being guided by the flesh instead of being guided by the spirit. Consequently, there were visible areas of sin because he had no power to say no to sin or to flesh. Remember, the Galatian churches similarly were not walking in the spirit but had started to walk in the flesh. And they indulged, therefore, their sinful desires. They were creating divisions within their churches. And more dangerously, they were enticed by false teachers. Why did the Galatian churches, my friend, the senior Christian, and so many Christians in so many churches fall prey to sinful attitudes, sinful actions, and even false teaching? because they cease to be guided by God the Holy Spirit and are guided by their flesh. One of the reasons why this may happen is that we forget as Christians we are at war. There is an unseen battle being waged for our souls. That brings us to the second point. To live a Christ-exalting life, we must wage war against sin. Many of us are blissfully unaware of this battle because we believe the lie that comfort, wealth, and health is our destiny here on earth. In war, soldiers who are well-trained are thought to be adept in both defensive fortifications and the use of offensive weaponry to overcome the enemy. Similarly, to wage war against sin, Christians need defensive fortification. And what is this defensive fortification? It is our knowledge. And what is this knowledge? It is a knowledge of who God is, the creator king of heaven and earth. It is the knowledge of who we are in Christ, sons and daughters of the most high king. It is the knowledge of who our enemies are, in Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that Christians are to wage war on three fronts against Satan and his hordes of demons, against this corrupt and wicked world that we live in, and against our own sinful flesh. And finally, the knowledge 
of how the enemy destroys us using different tactics. Let us look at verses 19 to 21 to understand what the enemy's strategies to destroy us are. There are 15 sinful traits described here, grouped into four broad categories. And these categories are sexual sins, pagan religions, conflict with others, and alcohol excess. In verse 19, Paul starts with sexual sins. Sexual immorality here denotes all illicit sexual activity like premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, and the likes. Impurity denotes promiscuity, and debauchery denotes extreme sexual perversion. Sexual sin is the most powerful and potent weapon against Christians, and pornography specifically is a cancer that has infiltrated the church. A few years ago, one of the seminary professors in America lamented that they no longer ask the incoming students whether they are addicted to pornography. Everyone is assumed to be addicted to pornography. The question is, how deep and wide is the problem? If that professor were to conduct a survey in our church, would he find similar number of uh, people mired in sexual sin? Make no mistake, sexual sin is destructive. It destroys everything it touches. The second category of sins we see in verse 20 are sins related to pagan religions, idolatry and witchcraft. For us, this does not mean idols of stone or wood, but idols of comfort, idols of wealth, idols of entertainment, idols of possession, idols of investment portfolio, idols of fat super account, idols of ambitions of how we are going to spend time in our retirement. Third category shows us eight sins of conflict with others, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Isn't it true that many churches have been riddled with infighting and factionalism resulting in conflict and animosity? Just as unity in the church is the result of being guided by the Spirit, infighting in the church is the result of being guided by the flesh. The fourth category of sins are associated with alcohol excess seen in verse 21, drunkenness and orgies. Alcohol was used in the Old Testament, sanctioned for use for celebration. Unfortunately, the excess of alcohol leads to drunkenness and orgies, which are alcohol-fueled parties that are breeding ground for all kinds of sins, especially sexual sin. Our culture, sadly, is saturated with alcohol. I remember asking one of my work colleagues several years ago, why must Christmas parties in this country be fueled by alcohol? His answer, mate, this is our culture, which we must be comfortable with. I don't buy that. Christians must set the moral high ground in every place our foot treads because we are the aroma of Christ. 
He's in verse 21, Paul goes on to warn that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This refers to people who make a habit of sinning. We must constantly watch ourselves for signs of these sinful traits and refuse to compromise because those who sin habitually in one or more of these sinful traits will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, such a person may not even be a believer. This is indeed frightening because there are many people in many churches of our day who live in willful and habitual sinful lives and they think it's going to be okay. Think again, it is not going to be okay. The knowledge of these four categories of sins fortifies our defense against enemy attack. Yet, in spiritual war, defensive fortification alone is not enough. Because to wage war against sin, we need potent offensive weaponry. And to wage war against sin, we need the most powerful weaponry that we have in our arsenal, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit of the Most High God through whom we develop the character traits of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, Paul gives us nine character traits of Jesus that he describes as a singular fruit. This means all the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are present in every Christian but in different measures and in a state of progressive increase consistent with the process of sanctification of God the Holy Spirit. And in verse 22, we begin with the most important trait, which is love. This is agape love, the highest form of love that is not governed by emotional affection, physical attraction, or familial bond. Such a love leads to self-sacrificial service. Joy refers to God's unchanging Sorry, joy refers to happiness in God's unchanging character and his promises. Therefore, this joy is independent of circumstances. Peace denotes the inner calm even when everything around us is falling apart because of the peace we have with God through Jesus Christ. My friend Graham who went to be with the Lord last year after a battle with cancer, embodied sacrificial love, joy and peace, despite the ravages of cancer on his body. Though wrecked by terrible pain, he sought the welfare of others. Even in his last days, he was proclaiming the gospel to the doctors and nurses who attended him. Let's look at the second three set of traits of Jesus, patience, kindness, and goodness. Patience denotes ability to endure painful and difficult situations, particularly painful and difficult people. This is anchored on God's character of being slow to anger and abounding in love. Kindness points to tender and genuine concern for others. Goodness, on the other hand, refers to moral and spiritual excellence characterized by active kindness. My friend Ashi, my batchmate from med school, 
and my prayer partner for more than 40 years, personifies patience, kindness and goodness. Despite his busy schedule as a rehab physician, he spends one afternoon a week, week with a dying Christian and takes him for walks, sharing a meal with him and listening to him for hours. Faithfulness means loyalty and trustworthiness. We will keep our word even if it costs us dearly. In verse 23, we see the Christ-like character of gentleness, which is translated as humble and gentle disposition that overlooks all offense, especially offenses create, uh, perpetrated by Christians. Self-control refers to the ability to restrain passions and appetite. My good friend Tom Curry, he's a missionary in Philippines, is a wonderful representation of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He brings the gospel daily to, the, to one of the worst slums in the world in terrible situation. When we live such a spirit-guided life and are actively producing the fruit of Christ-likeness, Paul says that we are free from the dictates of the law or religion. It does not mean that we don't obey God. It does not mean we do not, we do not obey God's commandments. In fact, we fulfill the law through our Christ-exalting lifestyle. Contrast the life guided by the flesh, which is crass, immoral, and filled with conflicts to the life guided by the Holy Spirit, which is holy, righteous, and at peace with others. So, Christians guided by the Holy Spirit must wage war against our enemies by fortifying both our defense and sharpening our offensive weaponry against our enemies. Is that enough? How about the indwelling principle of sin in our flesh? That brings us to the third point. To live a Christ-exalting life, we must weed the flesh of indwelling sin. You see, Christian life is like a garden planted and cared for by God. It was beautiful to begin with. Then weeds start to grow and threatens to choke the garden of life. Like the weeds, indwelling sin in our flesh too can choke the Christian life out of us. Weeds are a nuisance and need to be weeded out. How do we weed the flesh of indwelling sin? We weed the flesh of sin by dying to ourselves daily. Let us look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The crucifixion and death of Christ on the cross of Calvary destroyed the power and the penalty of sin over Christians. Yet, the presence of sin is still flesh felt in our flesh. This is critical knowledge for Christians because we must realize this truth every day in every aspect of our lives. The process of realizing that sin no longer has the power or the threat of penalty over us is liberating and that is the process of dying to sin. 
This means every day we must remind ourselves actively of our union with Christ in his death, in his resurrection to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit and his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God as the ruling King of kings and the Lord of lords. This therefore helps us firstly to consider ourselves less and less every day, even as we consider God more and more. Secondly, we consider ourselves less and less as we consider more and more God's people. In other words, progressively, every day we become more God-centered and others-centered rather than self-centered. This is like Stephen and Wendy Moody who have gone into the mission field at this stage of their lives when others in their age group will be planning for their retirement. Stephen and Wendy could not have done this if they had not learned to die to their own desires and ambitions. This is what Paul refers to in verse 24, of dying to ourselves. Such constant reminder liberates us to live for the glory of God and the good of his people. We are helped in our endeavor of dying to ourselves also when we weed the flesh of sin by faithfully obeying God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit indwells Christians and teaches us how to live like Christ. He does this by showing us through his word. This is such important truth. Look at verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Living by the Spirit means a life governed by the Holy Spirit that is Christ-exalting and God-honoring. Keep in step with the Spirit in this verse refers to following the line, following the trajectory established by God the Holy Spirit. This means God the Holy Spirit is our leader who goes before us and guides us into all truths and will bring into remembrance all that Jesus has taught us. This means the primary and principal way the Holy Spirit leads us is through the word of God alone. The result of such a life, humility, unity, and encouraging one another to good works. What happens if we fail to keep in step with the Spirit? We will end up feeding the sinful flesh, becoming arrogant and living in conflict with each other. That is what the Galatian churches had started doing, earning a stinging rebuke from Paul in verse 26, when he said, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Neglecting the guiding hand of God, the Holy Spirit, will result in disasters for any church, including our church. Sin will therefore flourish, conflicts will abound, and the churches will cease to be holy and set apart for God's holy purposes as the pillar and buttress of truth for our society that is dying and decaying. So, which type of Christian are you? Are you one who is guided by the Spirit to live a Christ-exalting life? Or are you one who is guided by the flesh? Please examine yourselves today for the sake of your spiritual health and for the sake of the ministry that God has entrusted into each one of your hands.
Do you walk by the Spirit? Do you even know what it means to walk by the Spirit? Firstly, you need to be a Christian to walk by the Spirit. Being a Christian means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the only source of salvation there is. There are some of you here, or even listening at home, who do not have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I urge you to commit your life to Christ by confessing your sin and acknowledging that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and is ready to give you a new birth and new life. Please, speak to the ministers or elders after this service. Do not put it off. What prevents us from exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? It is sin that easily entangles. You see, we are all guilty of concentrating on the big sins, yet the small sins are the one like unseen weeds that tend to choke the life out of our Christian walk. So what do we have to do to display the fruit of the Spirit? We need to identify sin and kill it and kill it every day. We identify sin, for starters, by memorizing all the 15 sinful traits that we have learned today. We've all memorized the eight fruit of the Spirit, haven't we? Why can't we memorize the 15 sinful traits? Because war against sin must be Starting, the starting point of the war against sin must be on the knowledge of what sin is. If we don't do this, these sins will grow deep roots like weeds and are much harder to uproot. It is not impossible to uproot. It is just that it will take a lot more work and it's far more painful. Why do we struggle to keep in step with the Spirit? We fail to do so because of indiscipline. Christians are to master the disciplines of daily devotion and prayer and meeting together. With every passing year, we are to grow in maturity in the Word of God and the vibrancy and the depth of our prayer lives. Yet, many Christians are spiritually anemic and emaciated when it comes to the Word of God and prayer a great place to start the process of growing, growing in the knowledge of the Word of God and maturity in our Christian walk is in our growth groups. Brothers and sisters in Christ, strive to live a Holy Spirit-guided life that is full, vibrant, rich, that is Christ-exalting. Through God the Holy Spirit, we learn to walk in the Spirit, we learn to wage war against sin, and weed out daily the indwelling principle of sin. Such lives will never cease to bear fruit, the fruit of Christ-likeness to the praise of his glorious grace. Imagine if our church will continue to do that, we will see succeeding generations of Christians exalting the name of Jesus from their hearts proclaiming the gospel truth to this dying world. Imagine 10 years from now, our children in Sunday school becoming Yoshi students, proclaiming the gospel fearlessly and unashamedly. And our Yoshi 
students going on to young adulthood, marrying Christian spouses and building Christian families that are pillars and buttresses of truth in themselves. And uh, young adults going on to mature adulthood, mentoring the next generation of people. What a sight it'll be to behold. Let us continue to live a life that is truly worthy of the gospel that we have received. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, the power of your word, and the wonders of the presence of your Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for your faithfulness in showing us today what it means to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, and to be filled with your word, O oh God. So we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.